No driving gloves again here. As we told you last week, Will took a vacation day for the, what, 12th time this year and uh, 15 recording sessions there, Derek? <laughs> uh, that's about right. Yeah. yeah. So you've got Derek and me tonight. Uh, have you done anything exciting in our little weekly recap of what we're doing, like our lives matter to our listeners? Well, I mean, last uh, obviously uh, last week, uh, we know that I was recording from South Bend, Indiana, from the uh, NAM conference and back in Bowling Green this week and back to the museum world and working on exhibit collections and all those good things we do at the Corvette Museum. Uh, just back to life as normal now, I guess. Normal life. I remember those days, nine to five jobs and things. Like I say, still working my venture. Uh, figuring out some things, kind of a, a slow week for me here. This is beginning to pull my hair out. No income and no no work. <laughs> so don't know. And I say just kind of a boring, mundane week for me, too. Uh, trying to think if I did anything exciting. Nope. We've been working for a while. We've been chatting. We're going to go back to our little interview format with Will Gone to keep it three people. Uh, met this gentleman I've known of this gentleman for many years, and I met him a few years back when he, I think he was displaying a Victorus uh, with, I want to say Merrill, correct me if I'm wrong there, Jeff, uh, at Carlisle, and we chatted a bit, and somehow we've stayed in touch over the years, and uh, since Derek plays with fiberglass a lot, um, he also knows Jeff, so we, we, we've known, I think both of us have known Jeff for many years, and this is Jeff Hacker with... Uh, He's kind of known for a, a website, uh, Forgotten Fiberglass, which he's tr beginning to rebrand in that because he's expanded and learned that a lot of these forgotten cars are not fiberglass with uh, undiscovered classics. And he, he's he got some very envious cars that go through his hands. It's, it's a really unique business hobby he's assembled and that he's finding a lot of these what would commonly be referred to as kit cars, but really they're the American version of the little racers. You know, we all know of Lotus and Tyrrell and McLaren and all these little companies, niche companies and backyard companies that built cars out of aluminum in England in the post-war years. The same thing happened here in the United States, except we had fiberglass at our disposal. And a lot of these little one-off interesting sports cars were created by hobbyists and returning GIs and these people that were, you know, had been to war and faced death and, you know, nothing was, nothing could stand in their way. And they built these wonderful items. And Jeff has kind of made it his life's work outside of his day job to save this portion of history. We're going to let Jeff kind of guide this. He'll tell us a little bit about what's going on here. We'll ask him some questions, and we want the listeners to ask us some questions, and we'll have Jeff back. Jeff can talk. We could do this 12 hours tonight, and Jeff could fill us in, and you would learn for all 12 hours. But let's see how it goes. And Jeff, would you like to do a little bit better introduction of yourself, and we'll get into this, sir? That was a very nice introduction. Thank you for kind words and thoughts from from both you and Derek. I um, am honored to be here and honored to represent the history and story of the post-war and actually in some pre-war, um, basically the development and the you know, exciting expansion of American sports cars. Um, I always call the, the, you know, how many, I think I, I met Derek many years ago. I say, how many 
sports cars could you buy before the Corvette came out in late 1953, you know, when it became available, at least in some numbers? And because I, I love that question, I've, I've done that on TV shows and such to Ray Abraham. And the answer is prior to 1953, if you wanted an American sports car, most people think well, you couldn't have any. Corvette was the first. Well, Corvette was the 51st. <laughs> There's a, at least 50 sports cars you could have bought from about 1947 to 1953 when the Corvette came out. And when you go back through the history and some of the even Corvette history from um, Carl Ludwigson, I think it's called the Star Spangled Corvette, um, it's all American car. You know, they talk about some of those cars and they talk about how Glass Bar, which is one of the early ones, was um, Bill Trader designed. It was part of the consulting team that came up to uh, Detroit and helped out in at least giving advice and such and what he learned. So the story of American sports cars, the first, the famous ones, of course, the Corvette and the T-Bird and, and some of the other, maybe uh, the, I'm trying to think of some of the hybrids, you know, we have a British body and, uh, I'm sorry, British body and American power. But really the, uh, the American sports car was this small coach building, like you mentioned, uh, John, from England, where these tiny little companies were building sports cars and sports car bodies and so forth. It's, it's always been interesting to me. In, in, in Europe, you had tons of coach building companies all doing things in aluminum, uh, almost I mean, perfectly in aluminum, not, fi not fiberglass. It was more of an American thing to start. <clears throat> but uh, in America, they were doing uh, primarily out of fiberglass. Not everyone. Jack Sutton was doing aluminum bodies and Troutman and Barnes later on, they were in the mid-50s. Well, they were in the mid-50s. Um, there were other companies doing aluminum, but um, one of those guys, I think it was uh, this person who built Chuck Tatum's car, Hageman, I forgot his first name, said fiberglass was the death of the coach building of aluminum in America. Um, well, that was said from California, uh, which is where fiberglass really was the most popular in terms of sports cars. So it's an interesting, I'm, I'm honored to represent that part of history. It's been documented at a very high level, not a very, all the details level, the granular level. And uh, I remember when I first got into this thinking, boy, it'd be neat if there was someone out there digging around and could share all this stuff. And I remember thinking also, I hope to God it's not going to be me. And it turned <laughs> out to be me. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but when I say me, it's, it was myself and Rick DeLouis and Harold Pace. Some of the people we've lost, those two we've lost in recent years. And others who've done a, a fantastic job beforehand. But um, it was apparent when we started this in 2006 or seven. And I'm, I'm not kidding when I said um, I would love to, you know, hope to God it's not going to be me because this is what's needed. But it, the reason I was saying that is not for a, a lack of love of it, but because I knew it would take an amazing amount of work to try to establish the legitimacy and the history and document that. Not that it hasn't been fun and exciting, but there is a, uh, the, a flip side to fun and exciting. <laughs> it can be tedious and heartbreaking and, you know, at times just the amount of effort it takes. Sometimes I've described it as trying to get this, uh, the data, you know, for stories and getting information out, um, getting information to be able to write something like trying to get a, a drink of a glass of water by taking an empty cup and holding it sideways and running around and gathering up water vapor. It's so hard to find information. It takes so long to identify if there are people from 60 or 70 years ago or families. But we've been surprisingly successful, um, so way surprising for me, um, in gathering information. I say a lot of you know Derek and I's jobs, uh, especially back when I was with the museum, and obviously Derek still is, is ga gaining that information and those stories and trying to do it before the people pass or you're always in a hurry, or it's always a race against time. 
And, you know, I've only done, you know, 75, 100 projects in my life, and I don't know what Derek's number is. And you've seemed to have, you know, are your website and that with, with the cars and what you have in your inventory, it's constant and ongoing. And I think I said to you in a phone call once that uh, you have some excellent time management skills to be able to do the research <laughs> you do and keep it organized and then to keep it all in your head. I wish I wish I had your time management skills and your memory. It's um it's overwhelming and I'm not bragging. It's um it's gotten to the point where I've had to restructure how I organize information physically, uh, you know, in a house and in books and how to preserve that information for beyond my lifetime. Um, simple things like switching from file cabinets to plastic totes that seal to keep out bugs and others because there's money is a limited resource and I can't collect it. And then being in Florida last was a year and a half ago, here comes hurricane Irma. And what do you think I did up all last uh, that night before the hurricane was going to hit? Because I live four feet above the sea level. I was out packing everything into totes and taking all that stuff out of the house so that the magazines and the brochures and things wouldn't be lost. So it's a uh, time management. It's always looks better from the outside than looking in, but uh, I've had to accommodate making sure that doesn't happen again. And I'm more situ- more prepared to go. And the totes are the one thing, you know, they're already to go file cabinets. Don't keep bugs out. File cabinets. Don't keep water out. <laughs> totes. I have a half a chance to get things, <laughs> get things out. So the hurricanes don't destroy them. So uh, there's, there's challenges that uh, with research that aren't necessarily in the, in the research handbook. Usually it's about how to go about research, but there's a lot of other things. Uh, finding a car and, and we found the glass bar race car, Actually, it was, we found the family that had found it years before. And one of the things they did when they found it was they had to get it out of the pasture because the horses were eating the cockpit. You know, saving a car from horses. So, uh, I don't know if that might be a first for me. I've heard of, you know, insects and snakes and bugs and chickens. And I don't know if I've ever uh, heard horses, of a car- <laughs> Horses are, will do, do something called cribbing. And it's a it's a habit which they grab their, their mouth and they'll... Against something that's very firm and pull, it's it's a habit of being in a, in a caged or fenced off environment. So, they were using the car to do that. With they weren't eating it. I, I kid about eating, but they were actually using it to, and kind of destroying the cockpit of the car. So, it, there's a lot of interesting, strange little stories here, along the way that you wouldn't necessarily see in a, you know, wouldn't think would be on your in a handbook of restoration or saving cars or doing research. Hurricanes and horses, oh my, like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I think it was just the uh, horses maybe taking revenge on the horseless carriage. That may be, <laughs> maybe, that may be what it was. It was uh, but you know, How dare you do that to us? Get in their last bite, you might say. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really like about uh, your website, Jeff, you know, you've got a kind of a, a fiberglass history timeline. And, of course, you know, one of my big things is, as a curator and, and historian is kind of kind of like what you're doing is is trying to tell that story of how many you know vehicles were actually you know companies were playing around with with these you know reinforced plastic bodies of some kind be it fiberglass or organic material i just think it's really cool to look through that that timeline you've put up and it, it really helps people understand what was going on in that just pre-World War II and then, of course, the heavily into the post-World War II era, you know, with kind of this research into fiberglass 
and how they could make a a vehicle body out of something other than you know steel and any other aluminum or anything like that that they had been using at the time and get away from metals um you know so i just think i wanted to point that out because i think it's a very interesting part of your your website that you know can really show people and give them an idea of this timeline that happens um up to the introduction of corvette and you know one of my big things and and you know, I, I think some people don't like me pointing it out, but, you know, Corvette is not the first fiberglass car. Corvette just happens to be the big one that comes out from a major automobile manufacturer and finds success. Yeah, 1953. Well, that was, it's actually, um, I was pulling up here while we're talking, 1951 brought four fiberglass cars to the forefront in called the glass bar the wasp and the scorpion and the lancer and derek and i've been talking about the lancer that i have a lancer and a glass bar um and another friend does too has a lancer so we're talking about potentially you know the significance of that to the history of fiberglass sports cars in america and beyond um that was 52 1952 which is a full year before it came out um but i'm just looking here in 1952 sports cars that i have that are in them i'm just mentioning some of the names the uh Manta Ray actually debuted at uh, Amelia Island at a show been missing for a number of years. That came out in early 1952. And not my Manta Ray or a banger Manta Ray, but this is a Manta Ray by Vern Antoine. I'm trying to the two, two gentlemen. But anyway, it came out early 1952. The Maverick came out in 1952. That's been at Pebble Beach before. The Victress came out in 1952. We've got a car called the Voodoo Gardener, the Voodoo Wildfire. I mean, all these are sports cars that are on the road running and driving around in 1952. Uh, La Sieta came out in Detroit in 1952. Most were California cars, but not all. Uh, and there were a number of other cars that came out in 1952 as well, uh, or before, like the glass bar and such. So there were a whole bunch of fiberglass cars out there in 19 prior to the whole the Corvette coming out. All of them are in such low numbers. If you added up all the bodies produced in fiberglass from 1951 to 1957, um, those were all the small companies. In 57, you started getting larger companies like Kellison and Ladari. But in 51 to 57, you end up with like seven or 800 bodies that were produced across all those different companies. That's it. And then you say, well, how many? Let's, if you start doing the numbers and say, well, I think Corvette production was like 300 in 1953. And didn't it go down in 54 and up in 55? Something like it, it was a few thousand, I think, those first three years. But here you got all these tiny little companies like um, John was talking about in England, but here they're in America, Allied, which is Bill Burke and others, all small. If you added up all the numbers, which we did get good production numbers from almost all the interviews from the principals or their employees or their families, you end up like seven or 800 bodies. And then you wonder, well, if we estimate that at 1,000, and then we say, how many became cars? And you say 50% became cars. And then you think, okay, that's 60 some years ago. How many, how many of those cars might be left after 60 years? And you come down and you say 50%, which is another high estimate. You end up with like 250 cars, you know, based on some liberal estimates, not conservative. So these cars were rare back then and even more rare now <laughs> in terms of numbers. The late 50s and early 60s, they started becoming more plentiful. You know, and all these companies that I just mentioned were gone. That early, early uh, initial grouping of companies uh, doing cars thought that fiberglass was going to be the new, you know, the new wonder material, which it was just like carbon fiber is, you know, you, you go to a car show these days and see a car made of carbon fiber. It's a, it's a wonder material. It's lightweight. It's resilient, strong. It can be repaired. It's expensive. Well, those were all the, 
the things that were true about fiberglass. People would flock to a car show to see a fiberglass sports car in the 19, early 1950s. And guess what Detroit did? Most of all of their multi-million dollar concept cars in the 50s, the Bonneville and half, most of the stuff that Joe Bortz owned, and they're all fiberglass. You know, so fiberglass in, in the last 20, 30 years has got its been punched around a bit in terms of its reputation, fiberglass or plastic, which is kind of funny to me because carbon fiber has seemed to kept itself out of that. If you have a carbon fiber car, you have an amazing piece of technology. But back in the 50s, if you had a fiberglass car, the new wonder material, you, you had an amazing piece of technology and something that just the, you know, the, the, the people, knew, the right people had to know how to build them and make them and design them and pull the molds and so forth. But they were fairly simple to, uh, for young guys to do too. You know, people with who studied it were competent to build themselves a body. So that, therefore we have tons of one-off cars, the Derek special, the John special, the Jeff special, <laughs> trying to figure those histories out is a whole different ball game. Those are pretty hard. That's the way it's always been. It seems in uh, car technologies is like you've said, you know, Carbon fiber of today is the fiberglass of the 50s, and somehow right. alu aluminum aluminum became the thing somewhere in between again, and it's just whatever's easy to work and handle. I mean, there was a point in time that Naga hide was the interior to have in a car when Nagas were first, you know, they figured out how to catch them and, you know, skin them <laughs> and create Naga hide, and prior to that, I mean... I'm always, I love cloth interior cars, and Derek will vouch that at one point in time, cloth was the material to have. That was the upgrade, and leather was frowned upon, and that wasn't because cars were all open, and cloth didn't take to open weather just like it doesn't now. And I just find cloth interiors so much more comfortable. And I don't know if I've ever burned my thighs getting into a cloth interior car like I do with leather seats and things like that. So I think sometimes the manufacturers have a way of playing with it and, you know, marketing firms. And you've said, car, you know, carbon fiber is the way to be. And now all of a sudden 3D printing. Now we can 3D print. And we're pr we're printing with plastics again and all of a sudden it's exotic because I made the the uh, material out of ABS plastic or PLA plastic which really isn't that space age of a material it means I can melt it and it resolidify the way I wanted it to I always like trying to tie some of this older technology and this older thinking into what the world is today and you're completely right is everybody's got to have carbon fiber now and and listening to uh, Bill Goldberg talk about, I uh, can't remember if it was a charger or something he was looking at, and you can basically get the whole car as a carbon tub now and put all the Mopar wow. stuff in it, and you only save 600 or 800 pounds over a whole charger doing it in carbon fiber. So it's not this miraculous, you know, lightweight blowaway stuff. I mean, to, you've got to have some substance to it. Uh, while you were talking and you know a little bit about saving these cars and horses eating them and aging and I was looking at your timeline Derek referred to and you know 41 Ford made a hemp car according to your website and I think that would be a thing that's discussed now oh we can make it out of hemp I mean I think Cheech and Chong tried to do that in a movie in the 70s but <laughs> they did. but it, it, in going to your 
restoration, and I know you've been involved with a lot of restorations of these cars pre, um, and I'm going to use Corvette as kind of a timeline here, post-war pre-Corvette. Can you describe a little bit of how that fiberglass aged and how it, is it difficult to work with? Does it have a lot of voids? Was one of my earliest memories of getting into car restoration, if it was built in the 20s, it couldn't be that exact. And one of the first project I worked on was a 30 Packard and putting uh, suspension pins into the thing. And I, you know, oh, well, big deal. They're painted or primed. I mean, there's got to be that much play. And I learned that a, you know, just a thin coat of paint was too thick. And I'm going, these guys were pretty precise. Can you give us a little bit of insight on how that fiberglass construction was done in the 50s, maybe compared to what we would do today? Um, you know, say Factory 5 lays up a, a fiberglass Cobra and what the difference is, or how it at least endured over, you know, go from 50 to now, we're 70 year. we're talking 70, 75 year old cars in some cases. All right. I can answer some of those things um, to your, um, to your audience, uh, not all aspects of it, because most of what I do is not a comparison, but we try to, how do we save this car? My God, it looks horrible. You know, that kind of thing. So we spend more time on the vintage cars and, and the newer newer stuff is uh but the newer the newer materials do help in quite a bit. I'll tell you why. All right. So first of all, you have to you start with something Stephen Covey said, he was a management consultant. Start with the end in mind. So what do you I remember a really good friend of mine, he built a car in the fifties, he still owns it. And he showed me how he was very proud. He showed me that the finished product, if you looked right in the sunlight, you could still see the weaving of the fiberglass through the paint. Okay. Well, that, that's not a good thing. It's not called something that you want. So the start wing, starting with the end in mind, means that something that appeals to the three of us and all your audience. And that is really the, the material that car is made of is irrelevant. It's the shape and the purpose. And uh, if you want to get into um, the durability, um, a metal body is a lot harder to fix on a racetrack than carrying an extra fiberglass one, you know, so really you have to talk about the functionality of what you're doing in fiberglass or metal and such and make that choice. But in terms of the end result, a car is a car is a car, you know, unless you're going to showcase a polished aluminum Cobra or a car that's made out of fiberglass with no paint on it, then the paint itself and the shape, it becomes the important, uh, how that car should look. And so you shouldn't be able to see, you know, repair work on a metal car underneath the paint. And you shouldn't be able to see the fiberglass cloth, if that's what you're using, or the matte strands underneath the paint. That's what you have to think in mind. So that's where we start. What, what should this thing look like when it's done? And then you, we work backwards because in the 50s, everyone had their own, uh, and people still do, their own way of doing hand-laid fiberglass. And hand-laid, if, if that's a new term for your audience, is simply laying up creating the body by hand as opposed to using some mechanical means of spraying the fiberglass into the mold, which is what's called the chopper gun, typically. They may have a new name for it now, but spraying both the resin and the chopped up cloth chopper gun all in, into a mold. And if you're very good at using a chopper gun and you've got good equipment, you can do that very well. But there's an implied uh, value these days that a hand-laid job, meaning hand-laid, where you put the gel coat down, which is your surface into the mold. These are female molds, so your very first coat is the surface of the car. And then either your cloth or your mat or however you're going to compose that, it's called a schedule, a laminate schedule. And uh, we actually make new bodies, so very limited production, and I have to look up exactly the laminate schedule. I could do that. It's on our webpage, but it's a certain number of 
ounces of cloth or mat and the resin that we use and so forth. That's creating something new. But they were doing their own laminate schedules back in the 50s. And Victris made one that was different than Glasspar. Glasspar made one that was different than Allied. But all of your production companies, Glasspar was boat-based with Bill Tritt. Victris, um, they came out, they worked, I think it was McDonnell Douglas, I could have it wrong, but he, he had spent some time in the military. Um, Doc Boy Smith, who was one of the founders, learning fiberglass in another larger company. And all these folks did, uh, who were doing really good cars. And you can see their good work these days when you look at a car uh, and you're looking at what you're starting with to restore it 50 years later. The ones that are really interesting are the ones built by Jeff, John, or Derek, where we're reading articles and doing our best to come up with a laminate schedule and buying materials and then hope to God that we actually make the car right so the body holds its shape and doesn't uh, delaminate over time or it's not resin heavy. And it's really interesting looking at these cars that have survived from my standpoint because you're having to correct for mistakes that are made 60 years ago, not in your bigger companies like Victor's Allied, Glasspar, Woodhull. Those are solid. Those are simply repair kinds of things. But in terms of the smaller com- the smaller companies, but typically the individual who get a one-off car, and there's some beautiful ones, ones that we're just finishing up now called the Voodoo Gardener. And if we had a picture side of the of the podcast, I'd be able to show you. But if any of your people want to look up the Voodoo Gardener on Facebook, they'll see it's nearly finished. And it came out beautiful. But that car was made by Jerry Gardner starting around 1952, kept it all his life, never finished the car. It was part of his family. He passed away. And we, um, before he passed away, we bought the car um, and brought it down and had to find the right team to create a car that was almost paper thin to begin with. It was so, so thin. And then create a body and actually use that as the starting point, but create a body that was the normal eighth inch thick or so approximate that you could actually you know push against and or push out and the car body wouldn't crack or anything. So our, it's much easier, uh, John, to start with something that right now and make a new body and we're making new buyers bodies buyers sr100 um auto week is doing a feature on us or we're part of an article coming out next month in uh, april all about do-it-yourself cars and creating it and i i hope they have nice things to say about what we're doing <laughs> i hope they do um but we're doing it's a very small operation but creating a new body is so much easier than trying to repair these older ones and the older ones the easiest ones to repair your major manufacturers and then going into repair and these other ones, uh, you don't know what they used, and you have to compensate for that. And the biggest thing I can tell your audience is you, what you need to do is you need to seal everything so that the deterioration actually stops over time and that you create a new service, sometimes encapsulating the old body in fiberglass, a whole other layer or two of cloth on top of it. And then we use a proprietary product. It's, it's called Duratec. It's a two-part polyester primer, but there are other companies that make similar products. And you can usually shoot that up to a quarter inch thick, which is fantastic because, um, you know, really seals all that. You don't want to see the cloth underneath it. You don't want temperature differentials in the sun to show cracks that were there years ago and repairs that were done. You, you want it to react like a brand new metal car um, because materials are relevant. Paint should be paint. You shouldn't have all these defects. So we, our challenge is much harder on the older cars um, than it is on creating something new. But on the older ones, you need to seal all of that work because their formulas or their laminate schedules were all different. And any kind of repairs or cloth or you don't want to see any of that. You need a beautiful painted surface 
Um, greatest compliment he can come up is a, there's a glass bar that just sold for a, at Amelia auction um, about two, three weeks ago, a glass bar G2 sold for $109,000, a whole lot of money. And a lot of people didn't know if it was metal or fiberglass. And that's great because it's really called a car. It, you know, material shouldn't matter. It should be the quality of the restoration. Does that help at all, John? It kind of covers a little bit of what I was thinking. You never know where where a question's going to go. I mean, I mean, in the last twenty years, paint has been is so much more sophisticated these days. When I was growing up, to paint a car took a lot more effort, and the, the paints were much harder to control. And nowadays, through the advancement of chemistry and all the magic that uh, Dupont and others do, paint, while still a skill to apply. Uh, absolutely, is you don't have to worry about some of the difficulty in applying it that you had 20 years ago. The same is true with with fiberglass. The resins are more durable. uh, They're more flexible. You've got more choices. I mean, all these things that uh, contribute to to, uh, a better product at the end and also a better repair. So we can do more things now than we could in the past, and the products are better than ever. Paint, you know, for your auto body folks out there and uh, all the different composites for uh, fiberglass. I'm going to use that a little bit to segue a little bit into kind of promoting your website. And we never did give a web address. Of course, we'll put that in the descriptions and that as this goes out. But undiscoveredclassics.com is basically your website. And you have YouTube channels and you've got a section actually in Hemmings Magazine. And, um, of course, you're on Twitter and I don't know. Just about you're you're just about everywhere. You've got a great page if people want to hear more from about you of of all your appearances on various podcasts, uh, YouTube shows, television shows. If you go to our, if you go to our website, which is Undiscovered Classics, if some anyone types in Forgotten Fiberglass, it, it redirects to Undiscovered Classics anyway. So either one's fine. But on there is something called the portfolio, John. So the portfolio is my attempt to try to capture, and I think we talked about that a few weeks ago. It's trying to capture all the different areas and where we've had an impact in, in over the years or what we do we think uniquely or unique to us or different than others. And uh, from the artistry, when we're restoring cars, we bring together a, a 3D team to create the car in 3D and use that to guide our restoration before we even start. And then our restorations start around those images and we make changes that we're contemplating. And we did this on the Voodoo Gardener and Glass Bar and Siebler and other cars that I haven't mentioned, but they're, they're examples in our portfolio of how we use the digital uh, images as uh, not just to guide us in restoration, but when we're done, we have artwork for the customer, which is kind of cool. That's where I really wanted to touch on next because the, the art that you, you know, kind of display are those three, those three D renderings. What can be d- done with them? You know, I was kind of fantasizing with Derek before. You know, if you took one of those and you've got that three D scan or that that rendering, it, it could be vectorized. And you know, I don't know if you have the way of. It has been. Uh, there are two different model companies we work with, and I made available all of our 3D images at no cost to model companies with the hope that um, they would start producing models, which they did. <laughs> and they're in 143rd scale, which sounds small, and it was I thought it was small. But it's, I thought it was Hot Wheels size, but 143rd style is, is larger than Hot Wheels, thank God. So you can start, see some details. And so our 3D images of the Leo Lines Custom Mercury became a model in December of last year. You can buy it. And the 3D model of Glass Bar became a model for a Germany company um, about two years ago. And the Victrus S1A, two models were released last year, a Johnny Dark Victrus and a, a, a blue one. And so 
what happened was our investment in 3D renderings and making them available from the artist, Dan Palatnik, to other companies at, at no cost from us was um, kind of the lightning rod for some companies to take the risk. And they're coming out now with two Matt Mavericks, I think, in May of this year. And um, another uh, two Curtis Alejandros, which are the, some of the first aluminum cars that I found. Because we talk about fiberglass here, but really, forgotten fiberglass um, really recognizes the the volume of things that people were doing and the creativity that they could do in artistry. And you needed plaster and wood forms and so forth, and you could pull fiberglass mold of. But there were other people that said aluminum's the way to go. And they were creating cars called the Curtis Omohundros or the Norm Tim Streamliner, which sadly burned this past year in the fires out in California. Another that was done by Dieter Lovaski or Lovaski, I can't remember the last name, but that was another aluminum. And you had all these guys doing creative aluminum cars. And that's where Undiscovered Classics came from because it came harder and harder for me to explain why. You know, why are these aluminum cars here, Jeff? He's forgotten fiberglass. I'm like, well, really, we're celebrating handcrafted cars of all kinds and all almost all post work and that's really where the name change came from yeah that, that that naming of companies is always i even juggle that with uh you know no driving gloves and visions and vehicles and some other podcasts that i work with and you know why do you do this and why do you do that and why do i carry eight different business cards and be it's it's always that challenge to figure out how to put everything under one banner and that's what i you know i really like the fucking forgotten fiberglass banner you used to use but undiscovered classic really sums up what you do and i mean just to go through your website partnerships and restorations you have two or three cars always under restoration you show it you show it a lot of the major concours and that's not like if i've got a mercedes 300 sl gullwing i send in an application and a thousand bucks and i'm in the show you've got to make a case you've got to prove why your car needs to be there it's, it's amazing the amount of work you do and i'm going to ask and Tell me if you want it edited or not. You do a lot of this, you know, out of your own pocket to benefit the hobby, like the giving away the 3D renderings to the model companies or, or the vector. Oh, it's all out of my own pocket. I don't have any kind of trust funds. And, and, and you, and you, you, you don't <laughs> I, uh, do it I as I spend all my money. You've never met anyone who spent a higher part of their disposable income on the hobby, period. But that's okay. That's as... Um, you know, in some cases, maybe it'll be returned. In other cases, maybe it won't. You know, I'm this. This is. It's not a dress rehearsal um, for life. We get this one chance, and so um, and the stories. I mean, I've loved cars since I was a kid. I mean, I remember, Sam, '56, whatever year this is, 2019. I remember me- memorizing the taillights of cars when I was a like a six or ten year old or something. So I could tell. Of course, there was a lot more differentiation back in the '60s and '70s than there is now, but I could tell from the headlight or the taillights, most of the time what the car was. So this is something that's, you know, you, you two probably have, both of you have stories like that, you know, when you got the bug. I still own my car that I, my first fiberglass car. I got when I was 19, August something. I'm still friends with the people that I bought that car from, whatever 1980 is to now. What is that, 38 years, something like that, 39 years? Still friends with them. And the company that built it, and, and uh, that's the Shark Roadster that, I think probably both of you have seen and some of your audience has too. But I used to drive that to high school and college, which was a concept car. Yeah, that, that that to me, I I would have loved to have driven something like that to to high school. It's, you know, completely different and odd and yeah, completely different, and really fun and just awful. Remember, whenever you go for form, you sacrifice function. I heard that from I think it was Barry Mazza, a guy that was talking about. Uh, George Barris custom cars, and it couldn't be anything more true than uh, 
that uh, that same concept applied here because the shark give me looks really cool and you get in and drive it and so forth. And I was much lighter then, like a hundred pounds lighter. So I fit in the car. Now I look like a Shriner getting out of a Crosley or something, a big guy. I can't remember. So, was it Joe Piscopo or somebody on Saturday Night Live? I used to always say, you know, there he used to always do this saying, I'd rather look good than feel good. And that's kind of the exact same thing, but in an 80s terminology is, I don't care how uncomfortable the car is, it, I, look, I look good. Well, there are there are cool cars and there are neat. I, I, I see them as forms of art and stories to tell. Our company is changing. And I'll go back to what I said. It's, what I'm finding is that more of the people who have been buying from us lately are actually wanting to become real, real driver cars. And so we've done a couple things that are just at the very beginning. And you, both of you may have seen it. One of the things last year I tested was uh, I've been building molds of six molds so far of vintage cars that have not been available since the 50s. And I wanted to be able to put them on chassis. And a, a gentleman named Eric Schultz, a very good friend of mine, Suggested we look at C2, C3 Corvette chassis, and so um, which are wonderful. You know, the the C2s came out in '63. I think the C3 was over in '82. Derek can correct me. You know, it's a long run. The chassis are about the um, you know barely nearly identical between that whole run. And there are a lot of cars we never have to destroy a car. There are a lot of chassis being upgraded, so they're available. And so what if we could put a vintage body on a beautiful Corvette chassis like a C3, which has independent rear suspension and, you know, far better geometry in terms of quartering and you know, the, the frame rails are outside. So the seating is low. I mean, there's, I don't have to convince a Corvette guy that it's a, a good chassis, even though newer Corvettes are probably, you know, even much better, but compared to the 50s. So that's kind of where cars are becoming much more drivable. And we're building several for customers using that or What's changing now is that um, the company I've been using in Sarasota, Florida, uh, JR Speed Shop, is in the process of designing new chassis based on Curtis, kind of inspired by the Curtis chassis from the 50s, but upgraded. And we've got our first three customers that are now going to be purchasing that chassis and putting it under three cars, two of which are a 100-inch wheelbase and one of which is 94. And that's going to be torsion bar suspension. And I'm like, this is really interesting. This is going a lot different than I ever anticipated. <laughs> I'm not buying any of those cars. Uh, it's it, For right now, it's something I'm, I'm working more on the C3 issue, make it more affordable. Being able to drive it is is something that is, and drive it well these days, it's very much like the Restomod. My cars, when I was driving, and this is where I was coming from in high school, college, scariest damn thing to drive in the world. <laughs> Because these are not safe cars. The fiberglass cars of the 50s have no protection, side protection. And anything that hits you on the side, you're very vulnerable. So as you get older, you think of that more. And uh, also a lot of the cars in the 50s, they were not balanced properly for weight. So when you took off a steel body and you changed the frame, which was perfectly acceptable, and a lot of those cars were built like that, the Victorus and Glass Bar and so forth, you then have to re-spring that, or your spring rates have to change, and some of that wasn't done, so they'd be very hard riding. But, you know, you think back in the 50s anyway, a friend of mine used to have a 57 Corvette, and uh, yeah, they, all the cars in the 50s were, you know, many of them were kingpins, and they didn't have the sophisticated suspension that you'd expect in the 60s and 70s, so, you know, even Cadillacs and old ones, you know, Steering boxes, not racking, pinging, everything's a lot looser in the 50s and a lot harder riding than, of course, later on. It's if you want to drive an, we call them an honest sports car. That's why I call them Corvettes, Thunderbirds, or any of the ones that were built like these back, like the ones under that we cover in Undiscovered Classics. Was- we just lost uh, Jeff.
Was that actually like a hang-up notification? Oh, or I wonder if his Bluetooth switched over. Yep, I assume. Here he is again. Hello? Yeah, it just ended. (laughs) Phone call just dropped. I don't know what that was from. Ah, you never know. It's cell phone, so. All all I was saying is that a car from the 50s, whether it's hand-built or whether it's a production, drives very differently from what we expect today. And so a very honest sports car, you know, that's what we call these, you know, they're there's not a lot going on sophistication-wise. Um, they're very honest in, in terms of their performance and how they steer and such would be one of these specials from the 50s or any of the you know other ones from the, the that are American from the 50s Corvette. And when I was driving my Shark as a young guy, that was kind of scary. And I drove a wildfire recently for a little bit. And, you know, you, the lack of side protection, you thinking with all this emphasis on safety these days, perhaps there may be a better way. And a lot of the newer customers that we have are producing new bodies or rebodying vintage bodies or rechassing, if you want to say, and getting them on things that are more performance and, and sports car oriented, oriented, as well as race car, which kind of surprised me. That's something I never expected our business to go in. Um because I, I love the vintage stuff. I have no problem with things driving like a truck. <laughs> so I'm all right with that. It's called honest sports car. But um, my friends, you know, my friends aren't. They want something better. Businesses have a tendency to go, uh, we don't care what your plans are. This is what we want to do. <laughs> it's, yeah. I'm getting that with my, my new venture. And like you said, you've been pulled. I'm sure when you uh, got that um, car Back in 1980, you didn't think you'd be sitting here in 2019 with kind of the notoriety that you do have to the hobby in the industry. Thank you for the kind words. I um, gave the car away to a museum back in the 90s. I gave two of them away that I found and got them back five years later. So other than that uh, short little, uh, I'd given them away to a museum that I thought could restore them. And kind of like I had foreshadowed earlier about careful what you wish for or you, you know that I was hoping I wasn't the guy to do the research. I became the guy to figure out how can we restore these cars? It's pretty scary at first. How do you restore something that's 50 or 60 years old, made of this 50 or 60-year-old technique for fiberglass? But we've gotten pretty good, and we people call in with questions and email questions. And I do our best job in, in getting them to people who uh, who are our resources for restorations, and, and they help them the best they can. But the good news is you know, these cars are fairly easy to restore. There's no roll-up windows. There's no air conditioning systems. There's often no trunks. Some don't have doors. Um, there's no chrome. Imagine a chrome bill for a 1959 Cadillac. My God. Um, I mean, has a grill and some windshield posts. Victorus has a windshield posts. Random Stardust has a grill and windshield posts. And practically all the others have nothing. You know, they're just fiberglass bodies. Keeps them nice and simple and clean. That's actually become their strength. You know, we can... People, as long as they're willing to work them, can save quite a bit of money doing most of the restoration themselves if they're talented. I like the fact that you were kind of going back to you know your childhood and stuff like that, and <clears throat> on the podcast a lot. And and you know, Jeff, I know you and I've talked. In my childhood, I grew up around my dad, who was a, a GM body tech, and had every year gone to tech center to learn on the new Corvettes, fiberglass stuff like that talking about knowing how to identify cars and things like that it, it and and mentioning um, the movie Johnny Dark it brought back a memory which is one of the other cars I grew up around that was fiberglass was the car that was and and I'm a historian so I'm going to say this 
I've never done the research on the car, but it was claimed to be the glass bar G2 that James Garner owned that was used in Johnny Dark. And I grew yeah, up white around that friend car. Mike Lester owned, yeah. uh, owned it in the Tascadero, and then Mike sold it to someone. I'm not sure who. Okay, yeah. And it was it, when I grew up around it, it was in the Mitchell collection in, in Owasso, Michigan. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it was sold at Barrett Jackson. I'm not sure if that's when your friend Mike purchased it, possibly, or but that's yeah, it might have been or he might have gone after it. That's a good yeah, example. We'll use that one as an example. Last by G2. Remember when I said I, I was hoping that person wouldn't be me? Because where do you start? There's virtually no information. So if anyone says I own the glass bar G2 that was in the movie, how do you prove either direction? First of all, where do you go for the database? It's kind of interesting. So I don't have the answer. You know, I'm, my background is a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. And all that really means is I make mistakes in a very, very narrow area. <laughs> That's really all it means. But I'm basically <laughs> a researcher. You go after information. You don't necessarily go after the, you know, the detail on a specific car to say, well, let me figure out how, who the Johnny Dark cars are. And it's going to take a long time to figure that out. And it did. Um, I went and became the docent or the, the, I worked with the staff at Universal Studios to go through and I visited them on site twice to go through all their files and pick up all the extra photos that I could that were just their professional photos, but they also had wardrobe continuity photos that helped us establish what the cars look like from behind the scenes. We found a number of people who were there, but no one took any photos or if they did, they, they haven't lasted over the years. We haven't been lucky enough to find them. Um, but we did go through and we got um, all the production notes, 11 pages, talking about the people who built each of the cars. I think they're on my website, Derek. Uh, and it did not, I say each of the cars, many of the cars, not each of them. So they talked about the designers of the cars. They got some of that information wrong, by the way, too. So at first, I used to think research, and the two of you have experienced this. Okay, good. Let's go back and get the written documentation in the magazines and so forth. And then you go out and find the people. And they're like, well, look at what it said. And they're like, no, this is wrong. You know, this 80-year-old person I'm working with. So you find out that the written documentation is terrific. And then you go out and find the people. And then they fill in the gaps because stories aren't always accurate. I hope my stories are, but I'm sure they're not either. So you do the best job you can. So I became the historian kind of for the Universal Studios. I'm not sure if they stole my name there. But I, I tried reaching, what's his name, Tony Curtis when he was still alive. And I reached his agent. We talked back and forth. And he said, Jeff, it was so many years ago. And I made so many movies. I don't have any of the detail really left. And Tony Curtis had a fantastic career. I was lucky to even reach someone through him. But he didn't have anything in his files about any of the cars. And then you start going through who were the drivers. And we found out through um, Chuck Tatum. If either of you know, Chuck has passed away since. He was one of the drivers. And he knew the other drivers. And we started making a list and then verifying that through relatives of the other drivers. Phil Hill was a driver for the movie. Um, Dick Freeland was an indie driver. He was one of the movie. We have to have a whole list of all those. And you hope you along the way you get more information. And this is just a little window into the kind of stuff. And then you start going through the production notes for the cars that were there. Like, did Woodhill Wildfire know whose Woodhill Wildfire was? And did and it turned out to be a factory car. And what about the uh, the Victress? And we actually tracked down that. And we found most of the cars that have been in the movie. The glass part is a little bit harder because um, I've never been able to find out whose glass part was. Bill Tritt uh, designed the car and was the company owner. Matt Tritt and Greg Tritt are his sons. And they had no involvement with the movie, unlike the Victress people who did have involvement with the movie and they knew whose car the, the Victress was. And that car has been found 
Virgil Rice, I think it was that one. I have to go back and look at my notes. And that car is owned by Alan Emery in Southgate, Los Angeles area. Um, so we've tracked down and found most of the cars. But the glass bar, they never really identified. I've never been able to find out who built it. So there's, I can't prove or deny or anything the, the Gard, James Gardner car. But I can tell you that it doesn't match any of the features that were on the car in the movie, like the recessed spare tire or the dashboard, things that you can see in stills have no bearing on the car that was the white one that shows it was the James Garner blah, blah, blah car, which, by the way, doesn't mean it wasn't changed over there. So if this is not a gotcha kind of thing at all, I'm just telling you the interesting story of research that may be boring or interesting to your listeners. <laughs> and so I still don't know which one who built it, but usually I'll, I'll probably find out someday if I'm lucky enough. Some will say, this is my dad's car that was used in Johnny Dark, and that'll be interesting um, if I do find that. But we have... I think we know six of the cars um, and who owns those cars of the eight cars that were in the movie. And for those of you who are looking at the movie, Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie and, and Don Taylor starred in a 1954 movie, June 1954 was released called Johnny Dark. And at the time it was the most significant sports car and race car movie ever done by Hollywood. And if you don't believe it, just read their production notes, which are eight or 11 pages long which were made for public consumption and all these things that they did to gather SCCA and sports car community around the release of the film. And Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie were A-list artists. Because if you look at the movie now, I don't know if you both have seen it or not, but if you check it out in the future, it's what you and all of us would call a B-level movie. And I mentioned that to Chuck Tatum. He goes, this was not a B-level movie. You didn't stick Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie. And Chuck was one of the drivers. He Chuck and his friend, his friend got paid $5,000 for keeping the Woodhill Wildfire running in 1953 in the fall when they were doing the racings. Uh, and that's a lot of money back then for keeping running. They had a hard time with that six-cylinder, two-carbureted or one-carbureted engine. It was a Willys engine going. So some of the stories you get from some of the people also can give you indications. I don't know a thing about that glass part. <laughs> Other than what I can do, comparing the white car, the car you grew up with, and the and the and the the uh, studio movie, you know, stills, shorts, and so forth, and no one's ever claimed they had it. And if I had a car in a movie, I would let everyone in the world know that it was my car in the movie. So it's always funny that we don't know the Curtis that was used in the movie. I've never been able to confirm the uh, the uh, glass bar. And the other thing is funny is uh, of the one car that was used in the movie, the Widow Wildfire, the, the red one, the, the seven have been found, but actually only one matches the the research. And, and to answer that question, I went and did a whole story on if someone has the Widow Wildfire from Johnny Dark, here are the characteristics it would have based on known facts that are verifiable. So only one car has ever reached that criteria. It's owned by a guy in Colorado. Hope I didn't bore you too much. Mm. No, no, I find I, I think that's very interesting because you know one of the things we John and I occasionally talk about on the show, um, being kind of the the two you know museum historian types, uh, is you know how difficult it can be sometimes to prove some of these things, and I mean this is just an, uh, you know another case and and a unique case where it's hard to prove it with mass produced cars sometimes it's even harder to figure things out on these cars that were, you know, only a handful of them built and you're trying to prove which one is which, you know, and that's, that's part of what I think the, especially the three of us that are on the show tonight really, really 
part of what we love about the jobs we do is is the research end and and trying to really prove what's or disprove what is what is out there. And that's why I kind of put that caveat on the front of I haven't done the research on the car. That's what I was told as a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, there's nothing. Can you fault the person? Let's say that it isn't the car for the moment, because I can't tell you if it is or isn't. Let's say it's not the car. Can you fault someone who found the car? You know, how many glass bars have has anyone seen in their life? I mean, up until my research, I'd seen any. <laughs> I've only probably seen about 10 now. They made 100. But if you're a car guy, most car guys don't even know what a glass bar is. So you see one, a lot of people think it's instantly the movie car, if they knew the movie. You know, so that's another big leap. So a lot of people, it gets even more interesting where I had a family, and this has happened more than once. They had, um, I'll make sure, a Victress C3 Coupe. And they told me that their father designed and built it. And I said, well, here's the brochure for the car. He said, well, it must have been. My father must have designed it for the company. He said, no, no, Miro Polly's 85. He owned the company. <laughs> Here, you can talk to him. He, he designed the car. Here's the article showing him when he was 22. He said, well, there must be some mistake. I said, no, no, is this, it's not a mistake. It's, it just simply is you know, information that wasn't complete. And they always, his father always built the car. I said, well, your father built the car and has every right to call whatever they wanted to. Um, and we have so much invested in it. A body just becomes a component. And, you know, I have a car that is was built as a Frasier Custom, the only Frasier Custom in the world. We're going to be debuting it at a local concours here in, in next month, actually. Um, and uh, I, I decided to, I joke around my friends since I, I never had any kids or got married. So I'm going to call the car Jeff. Of course, I'm just joking. But really, that's what happens. If someone built a car, they they personify the car so much as their own for all the right reasons, all the effort they did to build it. And then one generation later, it becomes the car that dad built and it must be dad designed by dad. So research becomes, as you guys know, it's uh, you have to be open. That's why I, I try to go out and share the research on the internet and say, here's what this car would need to meet if it if it was if you find the Johnny Dark Wildfire or the glass bar any of that stuff. I can do it for either one. I try not to prove a car is or isn't. I try to create a body of evidence that's verifiable from other sources, not just me. Then a person can draw their own conclusions, which can be very strong, by the way. It doesn't mean that you you know, just by saying it's is or isn't doesn't mean that you, you can't show that it's most likely this based on all the what is it, confluence or preponderance or whatever you want to say of uh, evidence points to it being that car. Let me duck in here real quick, Jeff, and ask if you don't mind mentioning, um, can you give the name of the uh, local Concours that you're going to be debuting that car at? You don't have to tell us anything about the car, just what Concours no, in case never, the I'm, listeners in there. I always share everything. I don't think there's only, only if I'm getting a car... Um, something that you know has happened for a while. If there's any reason to keep something secret, Auto Week wrote a whole series of articles on our work at Double Beach in 2015, and called us some of the most transparent people. Uh, which I hope wasn't a dissing of us. <laughs> we just shared everything, showed the whole process of rest- restoring a car, getting it ready for Pebble Beach, and, and what we did, and so forth. So I, we don't really, you know, I don't have. I think sharing is the best way to go. Tampa is starting a concord of going on. So they've actually had two start up in the last year or so, a couple of years. And one's called the Cigar City Concord Elegance, and the other is the Gasparilla Concord, which is next month. And uh, we were we wanted to be part of the, both of them, uh, but the situation in the past year allowed us only to be potentially part of the Gasparilla. 
I've got some restored cars and I got unrestored cars, but you both know it's kind of interesting at Concours. What are they starting to show? Survivors and survivors at Concours are getting a, a more and more attention. And so I said, well, I've got these two survivor cars. I have these couple of restored cars and they wanted to, they picked both of my survivor cars. Um, so at the Gasparilla Concord Elegance in Tampa, Florida, in somewhere around April 17th or 13th or something like that, we're going to debut two cars. If I can get my trailer down there and load them up and move them a few miles. One is the 1940, 1954 Frazier Custom, which I've searched for for 10 years before I found this. A story in Hemmings all about my searching for that car. Uh, turned out a friend owned it for many years didn't tell me because he didn't know I was looking for it. Um, well, I thought that was kind of funny. So I ended up buying it from a friend who had it. Um, the other one is it's a 1954 Frazier. It's a whole custom body, all done out of uh, metal. And um, I think it's got a terrific story. I think I'm owner number three or four. And it was uh, built and preserved um, for all these years. It's actually pretty much an original condition. And it had, there's not much information out there about it yet because I haven't started promoting or you know, talking about the car. And the other one is the 1937 supercharged cord phaeton that's been stretched and put on a new chassis. And uh, the person who's helping us may be known by Derek, Carl Ludwigson. I mentioned his name once before. I did a, that famous Corvette book. It's in your library. I'm just not sure if you know Carl or not. Carl's in his early 80s, and when he was going to college in Boston, photographed this car. And the reason he photographed it is a 1937 supercharged cord, beautiful shape, and stretched by two feet at the cow like a Bugatti Royale. Things two feet longer than any other cord uh, made in. It's uh, been available for a while, and it wasn't hard to find. But what's hard to find is who actually built the darn thing. And that's what we're trying to do, because the workmanship in the car is terrific. And in order to stretch a cord, some people call it the extension cord. <laughs> in order to stretch one, you um, you don't have a chassis to work with. It's unibody. It's got a subframe. Mm -hmm. And so whoever did this car started out by using a, a car that was about two feet longer, and then rebodying the cord phaeton onto this chassis, and then taking two front cord clips and changing the hood and doing masterful workmanship on the car. Um, so that you can't, I can't even find the seam of where it was done. I know exactly where it was done, and I'm still marvel to this day. And it's Survivor. It's got rust on it and beaten up, and the red leather interior is torn. And it's a little bit less of a Survivor than I would call the Frasier Custom I have is much more of a Survivor, much more presentable. But they wanted both of these cars. And the cord takes the whole darn trailer. <laughs> I have it's enormous long. It's uh send you some pictures of it at some point or your people can look it up. Audience crazy long. But anyway, it's a cord phaeton. They made about two hundred and fifty cord phaetons in thirty six and thirty seven, and this is the only one that was stretched, of course, not by the company. This was stretched probably in the forties and early fifties. And that's when Carl Ludvigson found this car in Boston and took four photos of it, which help establish its validity that it was done back in the day. Now i got to still find out who built the thing, which is what I'm hot on the trail of as we speak. I, I love that cord. I actually chatted with Derek about it before the show, sent him some pictures, and I think he sent that off to somebody else who's in the uh, cord family of knowledge. Um, but if anybody wants to see that, of course, as I go through and edit this show, I'm going to pull a lot of photos from Jeff's site and from the Internet and share our so we can put so visuals will be out there throughout the week on uh, definitely Facebook. And if I, you're lucky, I'll get them to Instagram, too. But we've, we've chatted with Jeff for a little over an hour now. And what I'm going to ask the listeners is if 
Jeff's a good friend of both of ours, or a friend of both of ours. I don't know if I, he he classifies Eric and I as good friends, but uh, we can bother him again and get him out on the show. So check out his website, see what he's got. He treasure trove of knowledge. You know, like I said, we we could sit here and talk twelve hours. We could, you know, Derek and I could just say, Jeff, tell us, and he would talk twelve hours. You know, give us some questions. Ask us some stuff about on uh, things on his website. He he knows a lot. He's I think very modest in what what he puts out there for his knowledge. Uh, I always enjoy ch- talking to him. It's it's always a wonderful chat. And he he's out there. Derek and I mentioned him on the show a couple of weeks ago, and of course I took the opportunity to tag him on social media because any publicity is good publicity. And Jeff reached out and said, "Hey, I tried to listen." And you know, he cares, and he like I said, he takes time to figure out how he's being represented and you know i would i'd be on the show he's offered to help me a little bit with my venture um he's provided me some information he's worked with Derek on exhibitions uh he's just always out there and always willing to help if you're a you know a listener who's this far into the show take a minute check out his site give us some questions uh Derek, you got anything for jeff and then we'll just kind of let him wrap it up there no, I mean, I, I appreciate Jeff coming on. I appreciate, you know, his his knowledge of, of these fiberglass cars and sharing that with the world and being, you know, as transparent as he is. I think it's it's a big way to promote saving these cars and, and promote their history. It's fantastic. I was actually just sitting here thinking I've, you know, always been intrigued by fiberglass my whole life just because of what my dad did and and kind of, you know, learning fiberglass early on. And I'm sitting here at, at my desk where I record looking at actually found at an antique store, 1950s era bullet shade, what they would call kind of TV lamp um, used to go on top of the console TVs. And the bullet shade is, the reason I bought it is it's actually early fiberglass shade. I'm just kind of sitting here looking at it. We were talking about seeing the weave of the fiberglass and and the strands and everything and just looking at it with its light on and, and seeing all the fiberglass just kind of thinking about all these products that were coming out in the in the late 40s and early 50s made out of fiberglass and kind of how far we've come with that. It's just really cool to kind of see these early fiberglass pieces being saved and and out there for people to see. So, uh, you know, I thank Jeff for for being a, a proponent of that, being so transparent. Well, thank you both for the kind words. I'll leave you with this example of what we do best, what I do best, of what we do. I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to claim it's all me. And it, of course, it's not. It never is about one person. But I can inspire. I can encourage. I can do all those things that you hope a teacher would do because at the course, you know, the core of what I do, it's where I came out of a corporate setting of teaching and also in college setting teaching. So, so this week is a cool example of another thing we did about 10 years ago. I found a good friend, uh, and sadly, uh, is, he uh, was a car designer, and I'll, I'll mention more of the name if you have me back on again and share you, but a car designer, and he did it for small independent companies and race companies and built himself a future car. It was fantastic. We debuted his car at the Milwaukee Masterpiece in 2013, I think. Hadn't been seen it since the 1960s. They call him Chabala or such, but anyway, he uh, also had other cars that he never really shared with other people. And I've been working on trying to purchase uh, one of the cars from him, and um, I'm, a- I'm actually able to do so. And it's not a car; it's an RV. And uh, the RV was built in the 1970s, and he took it to Canada from Chicago, and he took it to 
England and he took it to around the Queen Mary and I got photos of that. He took it to Europe. It's been all around the country and shows. It was extremely famous. It was all in fiberglass. That <laughs> thing's pretty cool. And if you remember, GM did some trucks of the 60s and 70s. One of them was called the Bison, a very futuristic looking truck. Kalani did another truck. This is one of these trucks or RVs that's super futuristic looking. As far as I know, none of those, maybe Kalani's truck has survived. I think because Kalani's still around 90 if he's around. But uh, he's a European French designer, if I recall. But I don't think the GM trucks have or any of the other futuristic trucks. And this one's a futuristic truck, has a whole interior with fireplace and hasn't been moved or touched in 40 years. And I've been trying to acquire it for the last 10 and, and save it. And that's what I was just able to do. So we're, as of yesterday, making plans to move it from Chicago down here. It should be very interesting. Probably posted one or two magazines. Um, it looks like it's right out of the 1970s and 60s futuristic cars that you don't expect should, would survive. And that's a lot of what we have. All these cars, they've written books and chapters. I think I, I go out and find the cars that people think have been extinct for and gone and just, you know, destroyed for decades. And I've always thought they were out there. We just have to go find them. And we found a hell of a lot, <laughs> heck of a lot of them, you know, to, to heck of a lot of them. And we try sharing them when we can. Anyway, more to share in a future one. If, you, if anyone's interested in futuristic trucks, that's what we're bringing home in early April 2019. Always exciting down there in Florida at your place. <laughs> so we'll look forward to that, and I do hope to ha do hope to have you back. Yeah, thank you for the invite to both of you. I hope I uh, provided some interesting stories for your listeners and, and such, and I'm always available if people have any follow-up questions. They can email me or call me. So, Well, thank you again, Jeff. Um, I'm about ready to call it an evening. Uh, Derek, you got any last words? or? No, I, I, I've got to get back to work on... Uh stuff for the house and for work so it's going to be a late night for me but it's been a pleasure uh, pleasure recording again this week with uh, especially with jeff on oh thank you again and i'm out of here okay thanks guys for the opportunity be well see you later